Hello and welcome everyone. This is the first edition of my Swoopcast, a podcast in which I go over various things that are on my mind at the time. I am Swoop, as in E, Poopy, and uh, I'll be your host on this episode and any other ones I I make. Uh, Today I'm going to be giving my reflections on the events of the Garden of Gethsemane, as recounted in the Biblical Gospels. And for anyone unfamiliar with these events, I'll give a brief recap. On the, uh, the day before what we now know was Good Friday, the day Christ was crucified, uh, and this day being the day of unleavened bread, a Jewish holiday, it's part of the Passover, Jesus foretells his coming death, and the apostles are asking about the coming Passover feast. And uh, Jesus tells them to head out into the city and tell a man at whom's house they're going to be staying uh, that my time is at hand. And uh, later that evening during the feast at the house of the man, the apostle had gone and, and given this message to, Jesus prophesied that one of his apostles is going to betray him. In turn, every one of the apostles comes together, and, and they're there with Jesus eating from the, uh, the meal, the feast with him. And each one of them asks in turn, is it I, Lord? And he simply tells them that it's the one of whom eats from the same dish as him, which a bit ambiguous, and uh, it seems to refer to all of them at once, and so he doesn't give them a straight answer there. Uh, then He then assures the apostles that though he goes, it's, it's written of him, and though it's his destiny to sacrifice himself for us, that the fate of the one who'd betray him it would have been better had he never been born. And uh, Judas, who's the one we know who betrays him, then asks in turn, is it I? And Jesus simply tells him, which he hadn't said to the other apostles, you have said so. And this is a bit of an interesting statement. It only appears in the Gospel of Matthew, but it's still a critical sentence. Instead of affirming Judas that it'll be him, Jesus is assuring Judas that it's his choice. Uh, Judas had said for himself that he will be the one to do it, and he has. Though the Gospels of Luke and John remark that Satan entered into him, this statement confirms that Judas' choices are his own. Jesus then proceeds to institute the communion tradition, where he gives bread to eat as his body and wine to drink as his blood. And uh, then he foretells that the apostles will all fall away. He tells them that when he dies, his metaphorical flock, these apostles, will... uh, will be scattered, as with any flock of a shepherd when the shepherd's gone. Uh, Peter, though, is a chief apostle, I guess you could say, the the one of whom Jesus says will be the rock for his church. Peter is adamant that he will not fall away, that'll stay by Christ's side through it all. Christ responds that before the rooster crows and the morning comes, Peter will have denied him thrice, three times. Peter denies this again, and the apostles, in turn, do the same, saying that he'll be with Christ until the end, that uh, even unto death he'll follow him. Of course, we see later that this turns out not to not to be so true in, in the moment, in the time of his crucifixion, uh, but like each of the other apostles, in turn, save John, he does end up martyred and dying for Christ's name, but that's that's much further in the future. Uh, from here, 
Uh, in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, uh, the party of, of Jesus and his apostles then proceed to head to, to Gethsemane. Uh, but there are a few more verses in Luke that I think are a little interesting that don't appear in the other two Gospels. And of course, the entire uh, narrative of, of the events of the Garden uh, do not occur in the Gospel of John. So in Luke, Jesus tells the apostles that even though they have no need for a knapsack or a money bag or sandals, as he provided everything they needed before, he now tells them that if they have a money bag, they should take it. And likewise with a knapsack. He also tells them that if they don't have a sword, they should sell their cloak to buy one. And he tells them to do this because this scripture must be fulfilled in him. Of course, his, his death. Uh, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. What he's referring to here comes from uh, Isaiah 53.12, one of the Old Testament books and one of the the, uh, the major ones that foretell Christ's coming. Uh, and Isaiah 53.12 reads, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. This being explicitly referred to. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for these transgressors. So, so what this verse is referring to, and what Jesus is referring to, is that he's going to suffer and die alongside the transgressors, and that the apostles need to prepare themselves for this, because that scripture is going to be fulfilled, that he is going to die even for those transgressors. And so he's just telling the apostles to prepare themselves for this, and to make sure they have the necessary supplies for when this comes, when Christ is gone, to take care of themselves, because they'll have to. Uh, so here, we then proceed into the garden, and the, the three Gospels in which these events occur, I'll, I'll meet up there. And the events here are about the same in, in Mark and Matthew, with a, a slight variation in Luke. Uh, but here in the garden, Jesus tells the apostles to sit and to, to wait for him to return. And then he takes Peter and the brothers John and James with him to watch over as he prays. He tells them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here. And watch with me. And Jesus goes a little further and then falls to his face, praying to God. He prays, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to suffer as he's going to. And why would he? He's still a man. He still wants to live, as we all do. Luke describes him as being in so much agony that he literally sweats blood. He knows what's going to happen. What has to happen. He knows he's going to reign on in glory in heaven, but his soul is still very sorrowful unto his death, as he said. And so he asks God if there's a way that he doesn't have to suffer, that he doesn't have to be tortured, that he doesn't have to die. If there's a way that that can happen, and he can still save humanity, that God please do that instead. But ultimately, he still says, if God will this must be done, then he will do it. And that is the ultimate measure of courage. Courage isn't not being afraid. Jesus is afraid. He's sorrowful unto his death. But it's about going on in spite of that fear to do your duty. 
to do as God has called you to do for the good of others, in Christ's case, all others, even unto death. And Jesus is willing to if he must. And as, as the apostles said, they would be willing to do too, but that they ultimately find they do not have the courage to do so. Not, not for many more years before which they all do find that courage and, and sacrifice themselves. So Jesus, after he's done with this prayer, then goes back to the apostles he brought into the garden, the, the three of them, and he finds them asleep. And he asked Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? Which is implying that he's been praying for a full hour. Uh, but he tells Peter, watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think that's important that he's specifically talking to Peter here. John and James are, are both right there, and they were also asleep. But Jesus specifically chooses to say this to Peter. So why would he do that? And I, I think he kn it's because he knows that the Peter is going to be, for lack of a better word, broken over his denial of Christ. Uh, we see that once Peter realizes what he'd done later that night in denying Jesus, he went out and wept bitterly. This deeply affected him. Peter, who assured Christ that he would be with him even to death, that he would never fall away, even if the other apostles did, denied to the world ever even knowing Jesus. How could that not feel like the greatest failure he could have caused? The person Jesus trusted to be the rock, the foundation upon which he would build his church. How could betraying the person who'd been with him and trusted him so long, how could that not be such a great failure? And I think this verse might be a, a reassurance to Peter. Jesus is assuring him that he understands. He understands this human fear of suffering, rebuke, and death. He's been praying that it could be taken away from him. His very destiny it is to die. But he's telling Peter that he must pray to resist those temptations and follow the path God has guided for him as he'd just been doing. And I suppose... This serves as a lesson to us all. Jesus knows our temptations. He felt and resisted them all, but he knew them. He knows that our flesh is weak, even when our spirit, our hearts, like Peter's, are set on following him. And, and Peter's was, very, very strongly. Peter ends up crucified as his martyrdom. And he understands that so completely that he would go through his agony through his fear and sorrowful heart to redeem us of those failures. So every time we fall into temptations and sin, we should remember this. We should remember that our Lord empathizes with our struggle and knows that even in the midst of our failures, he knows that our spirit is willing. And he tells us that every time we fall into our temptations and sins, we must continue to pray and to be vigilant that we resist their pull. But we know that even when we don't, even when we fail, he has already suffered on our behalf. And we've already been redeemed through it. And after he says this to Peter, he goes back to pray again. He says, 
My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He knows what he has to do, and he's ready to do as God wills. He returns to the apostles to find them asleep again, and this time he lets them rest before returning to the garden to pray the same words again. And returning back to the apostles, he tells them to wake for the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Here, Christ is betrayed by Judas with a kiss, and he's arrested. One of the apostles, usually attributed to Peter, draws a sword and slices the ear off of one of the servants there to arrest Christ. And Jesus tells him to put his sword away. All who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Jesus is saying here that he has all the power available to live, but that he must go. So the scriptures will be fulfilled. He must sacrifice his life for our salvation. As God has willed, he does. He had prayed that he might be able to have this destiny passed from him, but he knows that this is God's will, and that this is what he must do for the good of us all. Thus sets in motion the events of Christ's torture, his crucifixion, and ultimately his resurrection, the final victory over death itself and the salvation of humanity. As one final point, I just wanted to give a brief aside on the events of John, uh, the Gospel of John. As I alluded to before, these events are, are quite different than the other three Gospels. These events aren't recorded in that Gospel, as, as Jesus only enters the garden for his betrayal and arrest. Uh, instead, he gives a very long prayer in which he asks that God glorify him, so that he may glorify God in turn, that he may be used to give eternal life to all who know him by letting all know God. He says that he's glorified God on earth, doing all the work he'd been sent to do, and he asks that God glorify him with his own presence, of course, in death. Here, he's noting that though his actions on earth, or through his actions on earth, his teachings, his miracles, his sacrifice, he's brought glory and understanding of God to humanity, and that because he's been given authority over all flesh, he has the authority to give eternal life to all who follow him. And uh, there's a lot more to this prayer. It's uh, far too much for me to give a proper analysis of here. It's called the, the High Priestly Prayer, and it occurs in John chapter 17. So I would advise you, you know, to go check it out if you've never read it before. It gives some serious uh, theological insight and some insight I'm not entirely equipped to, to thoroughly and adequately delve into here. That said, uh, this concludes my reflection on the events of the Garden of Gethsemane. I hope it was helpful or insightful for you, as it was for me, to, to write this down and to, to think about it myself. Uh, and if you have any thoughts or comments or any feedback at all for me on this topic or about my podcast in general, I, I'm sure it was rough and and not the, the best experience, but if, if you've got any feedback, anything for me, I, I would love to hear it. Uh, so wherever you can get that to me uh, would be much appreciated. I have an email 
can reach me at uh, at unpurephoenix at gmail dot com, uh, or of course in the the comments here on YouTube. Uh, until the next time, though, goodbye and and God bless you. <laughs>